the longest book in the New Testament, 28 chapters. So get comfortable. We're going to be in Matthew for a minute. We're going we're gonna to try to um, get through it fairly, fairly at a good pace, 28 chapters. We could, uh, we could be there a long time. We spent nine months in the Gospel of Luke, which wasn't a, I thought it was a good amount of time as we walked through the Gospel of Luke. So I don't know if we'll quite spend that much time in Matthew, but um, today's plan is to go through three chapters. So don't all laugh at me at once, that's rude, but um, we, we've gone through recently um, because we just had Christmas, and I used Matthew chapter 2 and shared it recently at the Christmas message, so I'll kind of breeze through some of that. Some of that will be reviewed for you, but um, we'll get into it. So, um, you know, of, of the Gospels, as we know, there's four Gospels. We call them the, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John kind of sets alone on its, on its own. But one of the things that you find in the four Gospels, Matthew and John both being disciples of Jesus, Mark and Luke who were not, is God's really unique way of, of painting a picture from four different angles. No contradictions within the Gospels. But, but things are seen and, and details of the same story are given from a different perspective. Some would perceive that, you know, there would be a contradiction, but only perceived contradictions and no actual or real contradictions in any of the Gospels. If, if we all went to the, the Rose Parade on January 1st on, uh, you know, got up early and we have to get up really early from here. This illustration doesn't work as well here. But if we got up and we flew down there and we went to the Rose Bowl Parade and watched the Rose Parade from different angles. And four of us, uh, about a month later, sat down in different places and we wrote um, out our experience of that day at the Rose Parade and what we saw and what floats we liked. Everything would be a little different, right? Not contradictory. We all were there. We all saw the same parade. But because of our styles, because of our personalities, we would record different aspects. And then most importantly, because of the Holy Spirit's um, divine appointment, that each of the Gospels would, would cover something that God wanted covered and not repeated. So in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew is primarily focused towards a Jewish audience. So as you notice in Matthew's Gospel, he, he starts with the genealogy, which was important to the Jews. In Mark's Gospel... He starts with Jesus at 33 years old, no history, no childhood, just right into what he did as a minister because he was writing to the Romans and they, their attention span was a little shorter and they didn't care about the history or the religiosity. They just wanted the facts. Then you get to Luke and Luke was a doctor and Luke is primarily, you know, writing to, to his audience. And then he's writing about the, the humanity of Jesus, Luke is. And so recording for us how, you know, Jesus was fully God, but yet fully human. And he records how Jesus prayed often and, you know, things where we find Jesus slept, Jesus wept, Jesus got angry, and a lot of Jesus' humanity. And then John's gospel, as you know, primarily focuses on the deity of Jesus Christ. And we have the seven I am statements of Jesus, I am the great I am in, in John's gospel. Matthew's gospel, again, where we are today, Jewish audience, um, making a point that Jesus is Messiah or king. And so he's going to speak to Jesus's kingship. And as you guys know, Jesus was king and priest, he was Lord and savior. And so, um, and then also to him as Messiah. A couple of quick um, opener facts, you guys. We're not going to spend a ton of time in intro today. But um, the, the, the genealogies that begin here in the Gospels, um, 
there's two genealogies and we have, you know, some, we're not going to go through and read all the genealogies, first of all, because I can't pronounce all the names and because it's just, I'll mess it up. But turn with me, if you would, to Titus chapter three, verse nine, kind of hard to find. And then first Timothy chapter one, verse four. But I want to talk a little bit about genealogy because we are in a genealogy. In first Timothy in chapter one, verse four, Timothy says, give nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which, which cause disputes rather than godly edification. And then to Paul telling um, us to uh, Philemon says the same thing, basically, in chapter three, verse nine of, of uh, Titus. And he says, but avoid foolish disputes and genealogies, contentions and strivings about the law, for they un- are unprofitable and useless. And so twice in the New Testament, he tells us to, you know, not waste a lot of time with useless genealogies. And then here we have all these genealogies listed in the in the Bible. And so, you know, I think that it's popular in our day, right? The genealogical research, it can be fun. There's a new one. I just saw a new one out for the Olympics was being advertised all over the Olympics. What's it called? 23 chromosomes. Did you guys see it? No? 23? You get 23 chromosomes from your mom, 23 from your dad, and that's your makeup. And they test them and they tell you stuff about yourself. Or Ancestry.com where you, you give them a little bit of your DNA and they tell you what percentage you are and where you're from. And interesting stuff. But I think, again, sometimes we, you know, the the warning, I think, from the New Testament is that don't spend too much time in that. It's not that important. You know, that's that's a lot of moving backwards. And God wants us to, as I always say, what, move forward and and drive life through the windshield. But, you know, it, it can be fun. You know, when we go back in our genealogies, we're looking for something really cool, right? How many of you guys want to go back and find out that it's boring and you got a bunch of murderers and bad people in your, you know, no fun, right? I have one, and I didn't do it from genealogical research, just from family uh, tradition. But my grandma, um, on my mom's side, she always tells the story, and she has the newspaper clippings. But her great-grandfather, his name was William Wallace. No no relation to uh, Braveheart. But um, he was from Kansas. But William Wallace was a World War, or not a World War One, but actually a Civil War hero. And uh, he's my grandma's great great grandfather so that stuff is kind of interesting but anyways here we have listed the genealogy of jesus now now the important thing for us is just that you know jesus fulfills and i forget what the number is and it's always different but the reality is in the old testament there are over 500 different prophecies prophesying that god was going to send messiah And not only was God going to send a savior into the world and a Messiah, as we're going to see when we get into chapter two, where there's just this buzz around the world that Messiah is coming. But all of these prophecies concerning Messiah that that have to be fulfilled in one person. And the amazing thing of Jesus is that he fulfills every one of the prophecies to a T. And part of it is being able to to trace his, his genealogy. And Jesus is the only person who can trace his genealogy back to Adam. None of us could do that. Nobody back in Jesus's day could do that. And in AD 70, the Jews did keep meticulous records of genealogies. The problem was in AD 70, Titus Vespasian came through and what did he do? He sacked the temple in Jerusalem. He burned it to the ground and all of those records were destroyed and all of the the record keeping for the Jews to this day is out of order. You know, if you talk to a Jew today, they, they, they don't really know what tribe they're from. 12 tribes of Israel and, you know, 
they, they have some educated guesses and some ways to figure it out. Like the Temple Mount Institute right now, they're preparing to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem that will go up. And they actually have the artifacts that will go in. They're gathering the material. And they're advertising right now that they're looking for um, rabbis and Jews that will be priests in the rebuilt temple of Solomon. But those priests have, have, have to be from the tribe of Levi. And how they figure out what tribe they're from, not really sure. But they do have some ways. But there's no real way to prove it. Only Jesus can track his genealogy all the way back to, to Jesus. I'm sorry, to Adam. So, um, again, without like spending too much time in the genealogy, let me just say this about the genealogy that we have in the Bible there. Um, one of the, the, you have one in Luke and you have one here in Matthew. Now, one of the problems is King David, Jesus is a son of King David. He's from the root of King David, but one of the lines of King David was cursed. And so, so God could not, um, could not use that line for his son. So one line that we find in Luke's gospel is, is the bloodline that leads to Mary. And that's through the son, Nathan. The one we have here in Matthew's gospel is um, from Solomon, which is the legal line, which leads through to Joseph and his genealogy. Thoroughly confused yet? Pretty simple. All right, so let's, let's not read the names. And go to verse 17. No, actually, let's not go to 17 just yet. One of the things that in the genealogy, I want you to notice, look at verse number three, it says Tamar. And then in verse number five, it says Rahab, Ruth. And then in verse number six, it says the wife of Uriah. There's four women that are listed in the genealogy of Jesus. And one of the reasons why we always mention the women in the genealogy of Jesus is because it was, it was kind of a... Women were never listed in, in Jewish genealogy. Why? Because they're women. The Jews didn't like women. No, I'm just kidding. The, uh, really, the old, the, the known world, they, they didn't. You know, the Pharisees would pray, I, I thank the Lord that I'm not a woman, a dog, or a Gentile. But really, it's the, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And anywhere the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone, the position of women has been elevated to where it is today, the rightful place. God took woman from a rib of Adam. We say that's under his arm, next to his heart. Not a bone from his head that she should rule over him. Not a bone from his feet that he should walk on her. But under his arm, next to his heart. And so anywhere the gospel's gone, you see the place of women being elevated. But they wouldn't list women in Jewish genealogies. But Jesus, and God does it a little bit different. And he lists four women. The interesting thing is, the four women that God did choose. The first one is Tamar. What do you guys know about Tamar? Tamar had a father-in-law named Judah and Judah had three sons and he gave his oldest son to Tamar to marry her and he died. And then the Jewish custom was that the next son would have to take his brother's place and have an heir and marry his brother's wife and he died. And then it came time for the youngest son. And what do you think dad said? I'm not giving my youngest son to that widow maker. Something's wrong with her. She's crazy. And so he refused and he was hemming and hawing and kind of messing around and wouldn't actually give her to Tamar. Judah wouldn't. So then one day Judah's out in the red light district. This is one of the patriarchs of Israel. No business in the red light district, but he was there. And Tamar shows up all veiled and he propositions her and she, and he says, how much? She says, uh, how about a goat? And he says, all right, deal, goat. 
And, and, and he, she said, he said, but I don't have a goat with me. And she said, well, then give me your rod and your ring. And um, when you bring the goat back, I'll give you back your things. And he said, deal. And so he went into Tamar, Judah did the father. And then about three months later, there was a buzz on the street that Tamar was pregnant. And Judah heard it and he was so excited. He was off the hook. She's guilty. I can stone her. I don't have to give my youngest son to her anymore. This is great. This is exactly what I want to happen. So he brings her out in front of everybody and he says, oh, you're pregnant, huh? And he thinks he's all excited. He's going to get what he wants. And he says to her, so who's the father in front of everybody? You know, and she says, I don't know. Whoever owns this staff and this ring. (laughs) No. So Judah's busted. And uh, that's Tamar who played the harlot and tricked her father-in-law. And and then God uses her. And then the next one is Rahab. You guys know the story of Rahab. Rahab was the harlot in um, Jericho. And again, you know, Rahab is not even a Jew. She's a Gentile who was a prostitute and, 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 you know, don't gloss over that. I mean, you think about the lifestyle of a prostitute an adult film star. This was this woman, this was a, a sordid tale of a terrible, you know, not a, not a good woman and Rahab. But the, the amazing thing of the story of Rahab to me is that Rahab, because she's listed here after the, the, is the, the Jews conquered Jericho and they saved her. She, she left that lifestyle She got redeemed. And in order to be here, she would have had to get married, lead a normal lifestyle, have a family, have kids. And and, and God absolutely used it. One of the true stories, one of the powerful stories that the pastors goes around the circle sometimes is in a church here in America, there was a woman who was a prostitute and a former um, adult film star. And she got saved and she gave her life to Jesus. And she shows up at this church. And people know what's going on with her and what she used to do and who she was. Well, then, then in the process, the pastor of the church, his son, falls in love with her. And, and the people in the church, they don't like it. They don't think the pastor's son has any business with this girl and who she was and what she is. Well, he proposes to her. And everybody's flipping out and going crazy. And they know that the, he knows, the son knows the church doesn't approve. And he's the assistant pastor at the church as well. And the pastor's son and... You know, and so he gets up on a Sunday morning and, and he's going to address the situation. And he says, you know, um, I, I'm not going to address the situation with my fiance and my proposal because it's she is my fiance. I am going to marry her. But I just want to say that my fiance is not what's on trial here. It's the grace of God that's on trial. It's the mercy of God. It's the rehabilitating power of God that you don't believe in, that you don't trust. And really all the pastor's son would have had to do, right, is come to this story and, and take these things and look at Rahab. And then the next two, it don't get much better. Ruth was good, but um, the wife of Uriah is the next woman that's listed. And what's cool about that is that God doesn't want us to forget this guy, Uriah, right? Um, who, who's the wife of Uriah, by the way? Who? Now, everybody knows that. We know the name. We know who she is. But God doesn't even mention her name. He just says the wife of Uriah. So that in all this, we don't forget the the, the hero Uriah. You know, because he could say Bathsheba. And if he just mentioned Bathsheba and didn't mention the wife of Uriah as it went down through history, we would have forgot Uriah. would have very easily to forget Uriah down the road. But God would not allow that. And so he says the wife of Uriah. And you guys know the story of Bathsheba. Bathsheba was taking a bath and King David saw her Bathsheba. Her name's Bathsheba, by the way. 
And when David saw her, she was taking a bath on the roof. Now, lots to the story, right? Some would say, what was she doing on the roof naked? And the king's palace is like right there. When we were in Israel this last trip, we stood um, there in David's palace and very possibly really close to the place where David would have been. And, it, and, it, and from that vantage point, when you read the story, it, it's a little bit hard to understand some of the details. But when you stand there and you go to the place, the, it's, it's there right on near Temple Mount. And so you have the Garden, uh, uh, the, the garden of Gethsemane on this side, the Kidron Valley. And you could see right down into the Kidron Valley and up the other side and very easily how David would have been there and been able to look out. And she could have been, you know, 100, 200 yards away and very easily seen her house and her roof. And, and she was there bathing. And so David, all the men were out to war and David invites her up to the palace. Again, she didn't have to go, but some people like to try to play the blame game. And it was David's fault. He was a king. It was her fault. She was seducing him. But I think we had two willing parties of an adulterous relationship. So there, her husband's away. David has multiple wives. He doesn't need Bathsheba. He's got so many wives, but he likes it. And so anyways, same story, right? She gets pregnant. So what David does, rather than repent and, and just deal with that, he calls Uriah home and he talks some business about the war. And then he sends Uriah to his house to um, sleep with Bathsheba, to lay with her that night, thinking that when you know Uriah goes back to war and then he comes back in nine months and has a child, that he'll just think it was from that, that trip he came home and visited his wife. And so David hears news that Uriah went home and slept on the porch. And so David calls him back into the palace the next night. And he says, how come you didn't go into your wife last night? And he said, how could I? He said, my men are out fighting and dying and sleeping in trenches. And, and, and who am I? How could I go in and lay with my wife while my men are out fighting? And so David has plan number two and he gets Uriah really drunk and keeps filling his wine glass and drink up, drink up, you know, making sure that he's nice and drunk. And Uriah stumbles home the second night and David thinking, surely now he'll go into his wife. And he falls drunk on the porch and sleeps on the porch the second night and drunk has more honor than King David sober and won't go into his wife. And so David writes a letter, puts the king's seal on it, hands it to Uriah himself. He's holding his own death warrant, his own death sentence. And he brings it and gives it to the general Joab. And they put him in the fiercest battle and pull everybody back around and Uriah dies. And then the child that Solomon, or that, I'm sorry, that King David and Bathsheba have, the boy dies. You remember the story? He dies. David fasts in sackcloth and ashes. The child dies. And then... Um, um, David and, and Bathsheba get married and they have another child. And this child is the next king of Israel. His name is Solomon. And Solomon becomes the wisest man that ever lives. It, it's such a trip the way God does things. If, if he, David had so many wives that were simple and plain and, and easy to understand and moral and made sense that he could have chose the next king of Israel, the very line of Messiah that it would come through um, these other wives. But he chooses, of all the women, he chooses Bathsheba and that relationship. But again, I pointed all those out and told you those stories just to say this, that, that God can absolutely redeem your life, that God can absolutely use anybody. You know, sometimes I hear people tell me in marriage, you know, well, you know, my marriage is doomed. We, we, we got married in sin and we, we got pregnant. So we got married or we, we were in sin when we got married and we're in a bad place and it's just doomed because God's not going to bless our marriage because of something that happened in our past. 
And, and it's so cool because you can just take them right here and you can say, no, absolutely not. God will redeem your marriage today right where it is. God, God will change you no matter what the past is. You want to get right with God today? You have that opportunity to get right with God today. That's, that's the economy you live in no matter what. God will absolutely move, use you moving forward. And he uses these examples to show us that, that, that he, he's not moved by the past. He's not moved by um, Rahab, who was a harlot and a prostitute, and, and, and say, oh, no, no, she can't be Jesus's grandma. He says, no, I'll choose her, and I'll redeem her, and I'll use her anyways. And he'll take a marriage between David and Bathsheba, and that's the marriage that he'll redeem and he'll use in power. Amen? So, again, we, we follow um, Matthew's genealogy that... And Matthew's genealogy is um, ascending, which means it goes from Abraham to Jesus. And then in Luke's gospel, his, his is descending. He starts at Jesus and he descends back and his goes all the way to Adam. So we don't get to Adam here in, in Matthew's gospel. But again, two lines. One is the genealogy. Matthew's genealogy here, as I've already explained, is the genealogy of Joseph. There's going to be a test on this. That's why I'm going to repeat it. The, the genealogy of Joseph, Luke's gospel is the genealogy of Mary, which is the bloodline. Luke, uh, Matthew's gospel, Joseph, which is the legal line. They both go through, da- through David, back to David, because Jesus has to be the son of David. One through Solomon and one through um, a different son of David, um, Nathan. And then in verse 17, it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. 14 times 3 mathematicians. 42, right? And so 42 generations from Jesus to Abraham. And then the genealogy cuts off. And if you go to Luke's gospel, if you're interested, you can count the generations from Luke, from Abraham back to um, Adam, which gives you 18. So basically from the Garden of Eden to Jesus, 60 generations. But you, So you could, I guess, kind of get a timeline for, you know, if you counted or added a certain amount of time to each generation. It's difficult because they lived to be different ages, right? Adam lived to be 930 years old. So if you watch Adam's timeline and, and you look at it, you get to like the seventh or eighth person in Adam's genealogy and Adam is still alive. Can you imagine? Hey, honey, you got to make a good dinner tonight. Great, 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 great grandpa's coming over for dinner tonight. And he's there and he's like coming to the house, you know. But they were, because they lived so long, they were contemporary. And so the math would be a little confusing, but... My best estimation from just counting and this morning was about 60 to 62 generations from Jesus to Adam. And so verse 18 begins the record of the birth of Jesus. And it says, now the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with a child of the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. And so, as you guys know, the um, arrange, the marriages were arranged in, in Jewish cultures, in early culture. A lot of cultures this way today in the Middle East, I guess they figure, not I guess, they do. They figure, why leave a decision so important up to the hormones of teenagers, up to the fluttery eyes of 16-year-old boys and girls? You know, those decisions are too important to let kids mess them up. And so I, I think that right there onto something. Wouldn't it be good for us to 
have arranged marriages again. We should, we could get a choose who our spouses marry and arrange them. And I think it's a good idea. You pick a good family you arrange the dowry and you sign the papers and you just do it. And then your kids go to like fifth grade and they're like, that's my wife. <laughs> yeah. My parents said I got to marry her. You know, yeah. you want to go down the slide? <laughs> so that's how it would have been. I think, you know, they, they would have arranged it. And then from the betrothal, they were they usually by the age of 12, they would begin the betrothal process. Sometimes the, the man would be older and the girl young, but at, at the girl at the age of 12, they would become betrothed. Now, during a, a, a betrothal, as it mentions here, it's legal, it's binding. The marriage was not consummated. The marriage was not official, but it was legal, meaning that if, if they broke a betrothal, if we broke break what we call a betrothal or a proposal, it goes something like this, hey, I want my ring back. <laughs> you jerk, you never gave me a ring. Yeah, something like that. But, you know, but you just get your ring back. But here it's legal. You got to go through the courts, the documents. It's they're legally married. But then in the time when the father says that the wedding, the father of the groom says, now you can go get your bride as the groom is preparing the place. And so at some point, the groom in a Jewish culture begins to prepare the house and and do the settings. He never knows when the wedding is going to be. He doesn't know when it's time to get his bride. And then one day, the father of the groom will say to his son in a surprise, Today is the day, go get your bride. And it's just an idiom that one day the father is going to say to Jesus, today is the day, go get the church. And Jesus is going to come for his bride. But then they would have a seven-day wedding. Can you imagine that Uncle Larry or Aunt Matilda or whatever you got, you know, that one crazy cousin in your family, and you hang out with them for a whole week at your wedding, and they squeeze your cheeks and do whatever they do, and... A whole week, seven days. Our weddings go like seven hours if we're lucky. So they were betrothed, but not married yet, not consummated. And Mary is pregnant. She shows up pregnant. So now Joseph has um, a legal wife who is unfaithful. And so he's a just man, it says. And he doesn't know what's going on yet, but he knows she's pregnant. He's positive of one thing only at this point. He's positive the child is not his. And so what he decides to do, it says he's pondering on it and he decides to put her away quietly, that he's going to try to do an honorable thing. He can't take her as his wife because she's been unfaithful, but he doesn't want to make a public and he very well could have her stone, excuse me, make a public spectacle of her, but he decides not to do that. Put her away secretly in verse 20. It says, but when he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. You know, the funny thing about Joseph, every time we see him, he's dreaming. Angels are appearing to him in his sleep. This guy liked to sleep. And behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So I have highlighted in verse 21, he will save. And then I have this lame little idiom that I share with you guys that I think is fun. What do painters do? What do drivers do? What do framers do? What do salesmen do? What do plumbers do? What do saviors do? Save. Jesus is a savior, and that's what he does. And the very announcement to his father, to Joseph, is that Jesus will save his people from their sins. And then he says, so this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, 
Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And then Joseph being aroused from his sleep, he probably didn't like that, did the part about being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. So look at verse number 25 for a minute. It says that that that. Joseph did not know her. What's the next word say? Till she had brought forth her firstborn son. What does that mean? He didn't know her. Joseph didn't know her until she brought forth her firstborn son. Does that mean that Joseph knew her after they brought forth their firstborn son? Okay. The reason why I bring that up is because the Bible is really clear and not to offend anybody with a Catholic background or understanding needlessly. But the, the truth is that, that the, the, the teaching that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that Mary was without sin, is just not biblical. I mean, it's pretty clear here and, and multiple other places that Mary and Joseph went on and led a normal married life. And Jesus has had physical brothers and sisters. Mary and Joseph went on and had um, more kids. And Jesus had in the flesh half brothers and sisters, same mom, different dad, same stepdad, but that, that he had brothers and they lived a normal life. And somewhere along the line, the interesting thing is that Joseph disappears off the narrative. Um, maybe he died somewhere later in life and you just don't see him later in the story or the narrative. He's not there. But Mary, um, again, uh, against, you know, some certain beliefs, she was not a perpetual virgin. The interesting thing, too, is that Mary is not, um, she's not to be worshipped, as, as some believe. And we're going to see when the wise men come in the next chapter that they worship and they don't worship Jesus and Mary. They just worship Jesus. And so, you know, that, that we don't pray to Jesus, to Mary, to pray for us. Now, Mary is highly favored among women is what, is what the Bible says about her. She has a place of honor. She's the mother of our Lord, and, and rightfully so. And we as Christians, we honor her, and we love her, and we, you know, we appreciate that position. But it says that she's highly favored among women. She's among women, not above women. That she's highly favored among women. And without a doubt, an amazing call, an amazing young woman, but not a deity, not a God, not to be prayed to, not to be worshipped, not a perpetual virgin, and, and, and the Bible just doesn't teach it. So, and then it says that um, brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. And then, and then chapter two. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jesus to Jerusalem. You know, one of the things about Matthew's gospel that's going to be recorded for us is the the fact that Jesus um, came as Messiah, that he is Messiah. And Matthew, more than any other gospel writers, he um, quotes the Old Testament in recording for us that Jesus fulfills all these prophecies. You know, the interesting thing about, you know, Jesus fulfilling these prophecies, mathematically, it's impossible, really, for one person to fulfill all all of the 400, 600 prophecies that there are um, about the coming and the, the, about Messiah. Have you, ever, you guys ever met Jesus? I, let me ask that again. Have you guys ever met somebody who thought they were Jesus? You ever met a Jesus? Every once in a while and being around church for so long, I've 
Um, I see Sam shaking his head. He's an officer. I'm sure he's met a couple people that think they're Jesus along the travels. But at church, every once in a while, we'll get a guy that'll come and he'll he'll say he's Jesus. He'll show up and I'm Jesus. And we had this one guy. He was had like a thick German accent. And he thought he spoke some Hebrew, but he claimed to be Jesus. Well, the, the, you know, you, you can you can kind of weed this out pretty quick. Oh, you're Jesus. Really? Are you Jewish? No, I'm German. Okay, well then, sorry, you can't be Jesus. Jesus was Jewish. Were you born in Bethlehem? No, well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. Were you, were you, you know, you're going to die next to thieves, and on and on and on, and all of the prophecies of Jesus. But if you take, I mean, even if we took, let's say we take all the people who've ever lived in human history. I don't know what the number is. I'll just throw some wild guess out. I think the population of planet Earth today is about 8 billion, a little less than 8 billion now. Let's say 25 billion. Over from Adam to today, 25 billion people have lived. Of all those 25 billion people, how many of them, as we start going through these prophecies of Jesus and of the Messiah, how many of them were born in Bethlehem? So we have thousands, 100,000, 200,000. Of all those that were born in Bethlehem, of those number, how many of them can trace their lineage back through the root of David? And the number gets smaller. How many of them, how many of them, how many of them? And you come down to these impossible numbers. A mathematician did the numbers on, on one person fulfilling all the prophecies of the Bible. And they said it would be like taking the state of Texas and covering it with silver dollars two feet deep. And painting one of them red and burying it somewhere in the state of Texas. And then you get to fly over with an airplane over the state of Texas, and at some point you, you say go, and they pull the, the thing, and you fly out in your parachute, and you land on the silver dollars, and, and with a blindfold, you pull one out, and it's the one that's painted red. Those are the odds. They're quazillion trillion in number. Odds that one person would fulfill all the biblical prophecies. Again, just impossible apart from just miracles of God, of Jesus fulfilling all these prophecies. And so here we have the wise men. They're going to begin to come in verse three. It says, and Herod, the king heard this. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when they gathered together, all the chief priests and scribes, the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So the wise men come and there was a buzz in, in, in the known world at that time. One of the things I encourage you guys as Christians is you never have to be ashamed. If you tell people, Jesus is coming back. You know, for me as a Christian, maybe as a younger Christian, not so much anymore, I felt kind of embarrassed to, to tell people Jesus is coming back. Like I was fanatical or like I was a Jesus freak or like, you know, it was kind of weird for me to believe and think that Jesus was coming back. And so maybe because of my own interpretation as a young Christian, I always share that with you guys, but you, you never have to be afraid as a Christian. There's one theme of the entire Old Testament you absolutely cannot miss. And that is that God was going to send a Messiah. Fulfilled right here in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus born Bethlehem as a baby, fulfilled that God was going to send a Messiah. And then the world knew about it at the time. There was a buzz. If you read the New Testament, there's one thing you can't miss. And the one thing that's really sure, sure, this same Messiah that came, this Jesus, and you just read the New Testament as a child. No preconceived notions. No, just read it. There's one thing that'll be very clear. Jesus is coming back. And, and, and there's a buzz. That buzz is, exists all over the world today, right? I don't care where you go in the world today. People talk about the end of the world. And it's always something. In 1999, it was 2000. Everything was going to shut down. It was going to be the end of the world. 
2012, it was the Mayan calendar comes to an end. It's the end of the world. It's, it's this and it's that and that and that. Recently, it's, you know, it's Christians who constantly are trying to predict dates that, that Jesus is going to come back and the end of the world. You know the best thing I heard recently about the end of the world? The end of the world for you is the day you die. And that could be tonight. That could be when you leave here. That's the end of the world for you. Small generation are going to live to be the ones that, that live through the end of the world, the actual end of this world. But to be ready for the end of the world is it, it's when we die, the world ends. But the buzz that we live in today, the, the feel that we have today that's all over the world that Jesus could come back was, was there in that day. And the wise men who knew it, who would have been magistrates, who would have come from Babylon, most likely trained by Daniel the prophet, who was, you know, a famous Jew who was captive in Babylon and wrote books and prophecies and was the head of all the magistrates. And he would have trained and written books. And so no doubt down the line somewhere, these, these wise men that the Bible talks about, they come from the area where Daniel would have been in Babylon, which is today modern day Iraq where Israel was captivity and they come and they go where they think they should go, which is Jerusalem to find a king. It's where you would go and they can't find a king. So they go to Herod and Herod's interested because Herod's a madman, and he, and he was completely whack and he killed all his wives. He was married eight times. They said it was safer to be one of Herod's pigs than his children because he was constantly killing his own kids. So they didn't try to take his throne, killing his wives because he didn't trust them. He's called Herod the Great, not because he was a great person. He was a madman. He was called Herod the Great because he was a great builder and an architect and a planner. And he was very successful over his reign to to build things and and did an amazing job. He rebuilt Solomon's temple during his reign, re-excavated the Temple Mount area so everything would fit. And he was brilliant when it came to building. That's why he's Herod the Great. So they come to him. And he gathers together all of the religious folks of his day, the scribes, the Pharisees, the people who should have known. And check it out. The wise men are there. They say, hey, we heard a king's going to be born. Where is Messiah supposed to be born? And, and these religious folks go immediately to the scriptures. They don't go, oh, let us research it. Let us look. We haven't heard. We're not sure. Let us find out. You know, it's a, it's a trip. They go immediately right to the prophecy, chapter and verse in the Bible, And they say in verse six, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And the wise men say, oh, great. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Thank you, guys. And wise men take off and they go five miles from where this conversation is taking place in Jerusalem to where Bethlehem is, where Jesus is born five miles outside of Jerusalem. And the wise men go there. But but the religious folks of Jesus's day. They didn't bother to travel five miles to go see it for themselves. And, and they just didn't really care. They, they, they cared in prestige and religion and power and, and not relationship. And they had the keys and the prophecies and, and these Gentile magistrates from another country travel from a different country and they go, but these people don't want to be bothered and they're indifferent. And so in verse seven, Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And we always say, yeah, right. Sick form of worship that Herod wanted to do. And so Herod, again, a king of the Jews, 
threat to his throne. Obviously, he wanted to kill Jesus. And then you remember what Herod does, right? The wise men don't come back. And so his sick, whack job gets angry, and he orders that the Roman soldiers go in and kill all the babies two years old and younger, and they're, they're going in. And again, the, 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 the reality of that command and execution where Roman soldiers are putting babies on, on the ends of their spears, stacking them up, you just can't imagine. But that's, that's what's going to end up happening. And he sent to him to them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the, I read that verse nine. And when they heard the king, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them and it came and stood over where the young child was. So verse number nine, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this star, but I just want to say this. If you're interested, there's a movie, a Christian film called Star of Bethlehem, a must see. And it, it explains the star of David, this, I'm sorry, the star of Bethlehem. And, you know, cause it does some weird things as you read it, as you study about it, it, it stops, it reverses things that stars just don't do, but our universe is a perfectly precise clock. And so with new technology, we can go back and look exactly what the sky looked like all the way back as far as we can go back and all the way far forward. That's how come we can predict in, you know, 2025, there's going to be a, you know, exactly when the lunar and solar eclipses and all those things. Well, they rewound the clock 2000 years and they found something right around this time. Um, and, and interestingly enough on December 25th, they, they find this star that would totally fit all the descriptions and it's really fascinating so check it out it's called star of bethlehem now i said december 25th but um i want you to notice a few things here you know we've already talked about this but when the wise men come this is not an infant he's not being born in the manger this is about two years later it says that mary and joseph are in a house when the wise men showed because they showed up to a house so this would have been um, a little bit later. So you got to take the wise men in your nativity scene and put them on the other side of the living room because the Jesus, they, they hadn't got there yet. Um, it doesn't necessarily say they were kings. That's a cute song that we sing. It says they could have been, but it says they were magistrates, which very possibly if they were similar to the same ones that we see in the book of Daniel, they would have been eunuchs and they would have been scribes and people that were, you know, studied and learned and did things and served the king, but not necessarily kings themselves. The, the other thing, interesting enough, is that we always say there was three wise men. And where does that come from? The Bible never tells us how many wise men there was. There wasn't three, but they bring three gifts. Yeah, in the old song we sing, three wise men. I won't try to sing it for you. But um, we three kings afar. Yeah, yeah. So, but they bring frankincense, gold, and myrrh. And so because there was three gifts, we assume there was three wise men. But it could have been ten. It could have been five. It could have been two. But they, they bring the three gifts. And so the wise men come. And it says um, in verse number 11 and when they had come into what the house so they're not in the manger anymore this is some time later they saw the young child with mary his mother and they fell down and they worshiped who him and not mary just him and when they had opened their treasures they presented to him gold frankincense and myrrh now the gold was was a gift for a king the frankincense is a gift for a priest and the myrrh is a um, basically embalming liquids now, like a little bit of strange gift for a toddler, right? 
The gold and the frankincense I can get, right? Frankincense is a perfume, a spice. I can use it. It's, it's a blessing. The, the gold, for sure. Joseph would have loved the gold. And then embalming fluids. Like, why are you giving my toddler embalming fluids? But that was the gift that they brought because Jesus was born to die on a cross. And so it was a, it was a sign, again, to represent the death of Jesus. So he's our great priest. He's, he's our king, the gold the frankincense, and he, and he would die a, a death on the cross. And it says, now in verse 13, when they had departed, behold, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child, his mother, by night, and departed to Egypt. And then he went... He was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth, and he put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its district from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and weeping, a great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought this young child's life are dead. So, um, one of the things, you know, the kids always ask around Christmas time when you tell the Christmas story, well, what did Joseph and Mary do with the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh? And, you know, they're like, well, I don't know. What did they do with it? But the reality is it was just sustenance for living. And, you know, this young family who was struggling and Joseph, no doubt, by this time would have went and got a job and Mary would have been home with the kids. And who knows how far apart they, you know, they had their own kids if they started um, having kids again very quickly. And maybe Mary was pregnant by the time the wise men came and, and was ready for number two. And, um, and they would have been living life, but they would have been poor and, and working hard. And so without a doubt, then the Holy Spirit or, you know, the angel shows up and says, you guys have to flee to Egypt because Herod's going to come through your city and kill all the children. They would have needed money to travel and to live when they got there. And so no doubt they, they would have used the gold and the frankincense to, to provide what they needed when they went down to Egypt. And then just another kind of interesting thing as a reminder for us is that Jesus was a refugee in Egypt, you know, and that's always fascinating to me that our Lord, you know, was a refugee and the whole refugee, big picture of the refugee thing that I won't get into today, but just, just to keep it in mind. And again, I'm, I'm all for uh, no Trojan horses, but you know, that's, that Jesus was a refugee in Egypt. And it says in verse number 22, it says, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there and be warned by God in a dream. He turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which he spoke by the prophet, he shall be called a Nazarene. And so that's the part of the narrative, how Jesus ends up um, a Nazarene in Nazareth. He's born in Bethlehem, grows up in Nazareth, dies in Jerusalem. Amen? So that's the first part, you guys. We'll get into Matthew and some of the meat next week. So let's stand. Let's pray. Let's have the worship team come up. They're going to close us in a song. And then um, we want to pray for you guys, and we want to invite you guys. If anybody needs 
would like individual prayer, uh, Lydia and I, as this last song plays, we'll be up to pray for you guys. Our, um, if you have a prayer request, please fill those out. And then as usual, we want to give everybody in here an opportunity to get their hearts and their lives right with the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have um, here today and you're not sure if you're born again, maybe you don't know if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You don't know if you're a Christian. You don't know today that if you died, you would go to heaven. And again, you worry about the end of the world and the signs of the times. But like I said, the end of the world is the day you breathe your last. That's the end of the world for you. And if that's the time, you have to be ready to meet Jesus. And as Billy Graham taught so faithfully for 60 years and so powerfully, you have a decision. And that decision is, you know, to receive Jesus and receive life and receive salvation that the Lord offers to you. So we, we want to give you that opportunity today before you leave to, to do that. And so let's pray together as a church family. If everybody would just pray out loud for me. If you want to say yes to Jesus today and you want to give your heart and life to Jesus today, you just pray this prayer as we pray together and the Lord will hear. But it has to come from your heart. It's a real surrender of your life. No magic in the words, just a magic in you saying yes to Jesus and a real surrender of your heart and life to the Lord. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that Jesus died on a cross and rose again the third day. In Jesus' name, amen.